A little bit of background on Hebrews again, uh, just as we're still getting into it. it. This is a letter that we don't actually know who wrote this, but we do have evidence that the early church used this letter, spread it around, and referenced it a lot as uh, uh, important teaching that they had received. Um, so everyone, everyone in the early church understood this as, as of high importance, but we, we don't have record of who actually wrote it. So whenever I'm referencing uh, whoever wrote this, I will just refer to that person as the writer. Uh, well, we learned last week also that one of the main reasons for writing this letter was to address uh, a few major topics, especially some theological uh, confusions, if you will, about this new understanding of Jesus uh, and Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension uh, to help under- to help the people, especially this one because it's written to the Hebrews uh, kind of helping us understand the the Jewish background, especially Jesus being uh, Jewish and what that all meant uh, for these new believers and these new followers. Um, and the, the, the way that the writer did this was in the form of a homily that you would have seen in a synagogue at the time where they would be given a passage or a few passages and they would give an exhortation on it. But instead of, of verbal one, it was, it was written. Um, and just to remember that the Old Testament, or what we might call the, uh, what Christians call the Old Testament, what uh, is also known as the Hebrew Bible, or uh, we like to call Jesus's Bible, uh, those were the scriptures for the early church, um, and understood that, uh, but the, they, the early church also understood that many of the writings uh, held a lot more significance than just your average writing. We even have uh, Peter mentions some of Paul's letters in the list of scriptures that he calls them. So even the early church was starting to see that some of those writings were a little different, if you will, than just your average writing. Um, and one of the things that the writer wanted to address was what Jesus accomplished, as well as the why Jesus accomplished the things Jesus did, if you will, in the way Jesus did. Getting at the why behind, why did Jesus have to do this? Why did God choose to redeem all of humanity in this way? Uh, And Hebrews 2 begins to address specifically the point of Jesus as high priest. Um, So I'm going to read now uh, Hebrews 2, just verses 1 through 4. This is as the, the writer transitions from kind of giving uh, the thesis of the point of writing this into going to one of the writer's first major points. The writer gives a, a, uh, a warning, if you will, for the importance of, of what the writer is talking about. So here are the first four verses. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, 
wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to God's will. The writer is just simply telling us that this isn't a child's game we're talking about. This is of the most importance. We must pay the most careful attention, the writer says, so we don't drift away. Uh, if you remember that the, the original message from God given uh, to God's people, uh, the law in the Old Testament through the prophets, was accepted as good and true and to be followed, but that was administered by angels. Uh, and that was accepted as good and true. So how much more should the message given from God's own son be? And the, the writer is just hoping that the people would understand the, the importance of this. So now I'm going to read the rest of Hebrews 2. Um, verses 5 through 18. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is humanity that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their, their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly, and I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he, may, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This longer section, 5 through 18, talks about Jesus taking on humanity for humanity's sake. It also gives a, a new image that, uh, a new, uh, we don't talk about God so much in this way. We talk about God the Father, 
Son and Holy Spirit and many different things. But Jesus, we don't talk about Jesus as our big brother that much. And that's what the writer is talking about. Jesus is the faithful big brother. He's the one who looks out for his younger siblings. That is such a helpful image to think of Jesus as our older, protective, loving, caring older brother. The writer says that he tasted death before us as if he's a, a wine taster making sure that the king's wine isn't poisoned. He tasted it before the rest of us to show us, look, I entered into this, I tasted it first, and I came out fine on the other end, so will you. To remove that fear of death that, is, that gripped people then, and no matter how technologically advanced we get, no matter how good our science gets, we're still afraid to die. But that's part of the hope we have as followers of Jesus, is he tasted death first, And said, death no longer has dominion over us. Death isn't the end anymore. The writer also is pointing out that Jesus, as our big brother, he suffered in all all ways so that he can be empathetic in all ways with us. He says that he was tempted in every way so that he can be empathetic to us in our own temptations. Jesus did all this to fulfill God's covenant with Abraham. That that part of the covenant that said Abraham would be a father of many nations. And by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he secured an opening for all humans to be included in that covenant, making us all, through faith in Christ, descendants of Abraham. There's this... uh, Quote from Gregory of Nazianzus. He was a fourth century theologian and the Archbishop of Constantinople at the time. Uh, there's a quote in during the uh, when the church was debating about many different things. One of the biggest ones being uh, figuring out was was Jesus God? What did that look like? Humanity trying to figure out all those things. There's this quote that Gregory of Nazianzus has that is. What is not assumed is not redeemed. What is not assumed is not redeemed. That's a fancy way of saying that Jesus had to become fully human, fully human, because any part of him that didn't become human wouldn't have been redeemed through Jesus' death and resurrection. And there's a part of me, honestly, until we've started... uh, digging into Hebrews, uh, that I understood the how. I I understood that of, that makes sense, sure. Uh, Whatever wasn't assumed isn't redeemed. If if Jesus was only partially human, then only part of us is saved. I understood the how of like, because fully human and fully saved, sure. But the part that was always confusing to me was the why. Why did it have to be that way? If God is, you know, so powerful, why did he, why did it have to be that way? Why not just like, yep, redeemed, you're good. But the writer here is starting to unpack that why for us. 
Why did Jesus have to become human in order to save us fully? It's because from what we know of God, from what God has revealed God's self to us to be, one of the things about God, one of the rules, if you will, that God follows is that God cannot go against God's own word. If God gives a promise, God will fulfill it and God will follow through with that. God, for whatever reason, and this is above anyone's pay grade, we won't know this, at least this side of glory, if you will, why this is the case, but for whatever reason, God cannot go against God's word. And the the law, the covenant that God made with Abraham, with Moses, and with Aaron and God's people, what the rules that God set forth, God's self put forward for humanity to follow for atonement of sins, was that a high priest would provide a sacrifice of a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, for the forgiveness of sins for all people. But you can never truly have a lamb that is perfectly spotless. It was always, it, and so the, thus it always needed to be done year after year to atone for everyone's sins. And these are the rules that God had set forth, part of the covenant, God's words. And because it couldn't fully ever be done, we could never find a perfect lamb, all this, God said, okay, I'm going to hold up both ends of the bargain. In the same way when God did the covenant with Abraham, what we get the image in the Bible, uh, covenants during that time, you would sacrifice an animal, spread its uh, body out with the blood everywhere, and both parties would walk through, back and forth through uh, the animal, saying, if I break my end of the covenant, let what happened to this animal be done to me. But when God makes the covenant with Abraham, what we see is that God uh, took the role of both sides. Abraham was just sitting there watching as God said, I will take care of my own end of the bargain and your end of the bargain. And then when uh, through these rules and regulations that God set forth of there need to be a high priest that atoned, this is the why of God had made these rules God's self for, human, for humanity to follow. And God said, I will follow my own rules because I must. Thus, God came into the world becoming fully human, but living that perfect spotless life as the sacrifice for all people. Paul touches on this a little bit more in Romans 8 and, the, and what this means to us. And I've got a few people on the call here that are going to be reading uh, different parts of Romans 8 for us, just a few verses at a time. Um, I, I don't remember exactly everyone that I gave these to, so if you have Romans 8, 1 through 4, uh, would you read that for us, please? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Thanks, Elizabeth. 
that first verse that she read, potent, it's got to be in the running for best verse ever. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God must follow God's word, the law that God gave. And so he took on our end of the bargain as well to fulfill it. Uh, Whoever has verses 12 through 17, could you read that for us, please? Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Thanks. Sonship that Paul mentions there, it was an official term uh, in the Roman Empire for someone, and at that time it was only men, but Paul is giving this title to all followers of Christ, men and women, but it's an official title of someone who is adopted as a full heir to the family. You are given all the same rights and privileges and viewed just as if you were the firstborn son of that, of that family. And Paul is saying that in Christ, we all have been given the title, uh, that official title, if you will, in God's family. Uh, whoever has 22 through 27, would you read that for us, please? For we know that all creation has been growing, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Hmm. It's pretty easy to see creation groaning right now with COVID, killer wasps now. Uh, But also, we're seeing less pollution in the world because we've all slowed down. Spring has arrived for us here. Green is coming out again. We have hope for that promise in Christ Jesus of eternal life in Christ. But we also groan with creation that not all is right yet. We are groaning with creation. And whoever has that last bit, 31 through 39, uh, would you read that for us, please? 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, gave him up for us all. How will we? How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. Jesus himself is praying for us, for you, for me. He's interceding at this moment for everyone. God gave Jesus the right to be the one to judge each and every one of us. And it is Jesus who has already paid our spiritual debts. Imagine if you were on trial, you owed the bank $2 million. You'd be screwed. You, you can't pay it. You've got no money. But then you found out that the judge already had paid, that is overseeing your trial, already paid your debts. And in fact, gave an extra $200 million in your name just in case something else came up. That's like what Jesus has done for us. He has taken care of our side of the bargain already. And nothing can separate us from his love. The writer in verse 12, getting back to Hebrews here, the writer in verse 12 quotes Psalm 22. And the first line uh, in that psalm is a familiar one. That's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how the psalm starts. And that's the psalm that Jesus quotes when he's dying on the cross. Uh, But it it was a, a... well-known, understood practice that when a rabbi would quote just one line of a psalm, that you were to take the entirety of the psalm in context of what they're trying to mean, of what they're getting at. And even though that psalm starts with that cry of lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the first half is this deep lament. The second half, it takes this really interesting turn uh, And I want to, we're going to highlight and look at that a little bit here. N.T. Wright says this about Hebrews 2 and specifically uh, this quote of Psalm 22 that the writer puts in. N.T. Wright says, Hebrews quotes from Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. And you might think that was simply a quotation to back up that point about Jesus bringing his siblings, us, to a knowledge of God. But when we go back to Psalm 22 and read the first 21 verses, you'll find that they describe in horrendous detail the suffering and death of the one who truly trusts in God and yet finds that he himself seems to be God forsaken. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Asked the psalmist. And on and on he goes, describing his torments and tortures. But finally, with the verse that was quoted here, the psalm turns the corner. As a result of this suffering, salvation is accomplished. God's kingdom is coming. And a great multitude will give praise to God. Jesus' own vocation was made up in part of his deep understanding and application to himself of various Old Testament passages. And Hebrews goes to those same passages to explain the meaning of Jesus' death. And the phrase, Son of Man, which the psalmist quotes there, uh, which to a Jewish reader could simply have meant a typical human being, but it also, they would have been familiar with the book of Daniel 7, 13, 8, 13, 17, uh, and the teachings of Jesus himself to mean the Messiah. Son of Man meant both the typical human, but also the, the Messiah, highlighting the fact that the Messiah would now be seen as the true, typical, authentic, representative human being. And this is what Hebrews had in mind, as we can see from the last line of quotation about God placing everything under the feet of the Son of Man. The writer is trying to show us that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of humanity. Jesus is fully God, and the writer of Hebrews first starts out by saying this human Jesus was the perfect representation of God, but now is also saying Jesus was also the perfect representation of humanity, of what humanity was meant to be. In this bit about Jesus' death specifically, the writer is now transitioning us into one of the major points of this letter, Jesus as high priest. Specifically, the role that the high priest plays in atoning for the sins of God's people. Notice that Jesus realized, in quoting Psalm 22 himself, that he was a high priest over more than just the Jews who were seen as God's people at the time, but the entire world, including the Jews. And he started there. He always said, I came first for the lost sheep of Israel. But he realized, just as Psalm 22 says that the Messiah will be this type of a Messiah, that it is uh, a high priest over the entire world now and not just one nation. I want to read the rest of Psalm 22 for us. The one that starts with, my God, my God, why forsake me, goes through all the suffering that mirrors Jesus's, uh, the end of Jesus' life dramatically. And then it turns the corner here. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You will fear the Lord. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. There the, the psalmist, just like Jesus, starts with the people of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We find out he, he was heard. God didn't forsake him. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The psalmist is acknowledging that God will fulfill his end of the bargain. 
The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. That last line in the psalm sounds so much like when Jesus then said, it is finished. He has done it. N.T. Wright again about Hebrews 2 says that there is nothing we face today or tomorrow or the next day in which Jesus cannot sympathize, help and rescue us, and through which he cannot forge a way to God's new world. I, I love that. There is nothing that Jesus can't forge a way into God's new world. COVID, job loss, depression, relationship problems, school, finances. Jesus is able to help us forge a way in all of them to God's new world. What is it that you need in your life right now that you need a path to God's new world? That you need our great high priest Jesus who is interceding and praying for all of us that Jesus would help us find a way to God's new world right now. What's weighing heavily on you? My prayer for us is that we would have hope that Jesus himself will find that path for us. And that we would know this here in closing, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor neither present, nor future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.